0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 3. We'll be reading from verses 23 through chapter 4 verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to use the pew Bible in front of you or under your seat. You'll find Galatians chapter 3 on page 974. Galatians 3, 23 through 4 verse 7. Now before faith came, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, good morning. I really want to thank uh,
1: Brian and Tommy, musicians and vocalists, for uh, blessing us, encouraging us with those uh, beautiful songs and uh, sung in such a heartfelt, meaningful way. Now, what a great way to kick off Advent season uh, the season that we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, a season we call Christmas. Um, what is Christmas all about? It's the birthday of Jesus, of course. Uh, now, you celebrate your birthday on the day of the year you were born, right? Uh, we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th, but no, no one is quite sure if that's actually when he was born, the day of the year he was born. Um, but what we do know is that it is absolutely fitting that we celebrate the birth of Christ near the end of December. Why? Have you noticed what happens to daylight as December, as November goes into December and uh, daylight saving hits? I mean, it's like the lights just go out, right? Uh, The closer we get to the end of December, it's like the sun is as reluctant to get out of bed in the morning as a teenager is, Right? It's and and the sun goes to bed even before the old folks do. I mean the sun I almost thought the other day after daylight saving I saw a comet streak across a little part of the sky and I realized, oh, that was the sun. It just illuminated the the sky for just a little bit of the day. But things just get darker and darker. The days get shorter and shorter, and then there's a change. This year it's gonna happen December twenty first. It's called the winter solstice. It is the short it is the longest night of the entire year. And from that time on, almost something miraculous happens, there's a shift, a turn, and the days begin to get longer, the nights begin to get shorter, the sun rises earlier and sets later, things begin to get warmer and brighter until spring comes and then summer comes, and that's why it is so fitting that we celebrate the birth of Jesus at that turning point, that miraculous turning point, because... Jesus' birth marks a turning point in the history of the world. And from the time that Jesus Christ came to this world, things have been getting lighter and warmer until one day we believe Jesus will usher in an eternal spring, eternity. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and that's why it's so fitting that we celebrate Christmas around this time. And you know the movies that we watch around Christmas time, they often have this miraculous or this miracle uh, theme to it. You think about uh, Scrooge suddenly becoming uh, more generous instead of Stingy or George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life wanting to live again or the Grinch, his heart starts growing again. He gives back all the gifts he he, uh, he stole from the, the people of the Whoville, I think it was. Anyway, there's a kind of like a turn, a turning in characters too that we think of around Christmas time. But what I want to do this morning in the time that we have left is really investigate what is so miraculous about Christmas? Like, what are we celebrating? And we're going to do this for the next, actually, this week and the next three weeks, for the, the weeks of Advent. We're going to take a hit pause on the series that we've been in that is dealing with doubt. doubt. We'll resume that in January. But, but I want us to in, investigate, what is Christmas all about? What is, this, what is this Christmas miracle we talk about? And the passage that Dean read to us just a few moments ago is uh, a passage that uh, it's a classic text on the meaning of of Christmas, and it tells us three things about the miracle of Christmas. It tells us what it is, why we need it, and how it changes us. All right, so I'm just going to walk through this text uh, as it unfolds the meaning of those three questions. The Christmas miracle, uh, what it is, why we need it, and how it changes us. So, um, before I get into that, I'm just using the word miracle as a stand-in for what this passage represents, and that's going to become clear. But there's a, a poem by a uh, mid-20th century American poet, W.H. Um, actually, I don't know if he's American or not. It might have been British. But anyway, W.H. Auden. And uh, he wrote a Christmas, uh, a long Christmas poem. And part of that poem, he's pondering on the need, our need for the miraculous. He says this, We who must die, I think that's all of us, we who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act. The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. What is this miracle that we celebrate at Christmas? Well, we see in our text, so look at verse 4 of Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of our sons, of his son into our hearts. So we first of all see, in answer to the question, what is this miracle we celebrate at Christmas? We see that, first of all, that it's ascending. We see there are two uh, occurrences of the word send here. God sent forth his son, and actually it's the same uh, verb that's rendered sent in verse six, and God sent his spirit. So there's ascending that that we're celebrating at Christmas time. God is sending something. Now, I, I want us to get, get this text into our hearts. I want to let, let us to, to let the text just wrestle with us because if you think about it, what is this about God sending His Son and then His Son being born? It seems to imply that God's Son existed before He was born. You with me on that? So, God sends forth His Son born of a woman. Now, this confirms what we read elsewhere in Scripture, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pre-existed His birth. When Jesus walked upon this earth, He said to a group of His fellow Jews, before Abraham was, you know, Abraham existed hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ, He said, before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus praying to His Father said, Father, you and I shared glory with each other before the world began. So, whoever this is that God sent, referred to as His Son, pre-existed the birth of Jesus Christ, which tells us this, whatever it means to be a father and son when it comes to God must be different than what you and I are used to fatherhood and sonship on a human level. All right, so I'm a son of my father, and all of you here had a father and had a mother. Your parents preexisted you chronologically, right? With divine fatherhood and sonship, it doesn't work that way. God is eternally the Father of the Son and the Son eternally the Son of the Father timelessly. So the Father-Son relationship when it comes to God the Father and God the Son is different than the chronological time relationship of human fatherhood and sonship. And that's why God the Father could send God the Son. But we also see that He also sends the Spirit. Now this gives us a glimpse, and this is incredibly important when it comes to what we believe as Christians, this gives us a glimpse into the mind-bending internal nature of God, and that God, although He is one, exists in three persons, three centers of intelligence and affections and volition, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And what we're celebrating at time is this event in which God sends His Son, God sends His Spirit. Now, a lot of people really have a hard time with this, and the Term for it is the doctrine of the Trinity because it, se- it, it seems and it really does defy our logic, right? Particularly the the, the Muslim faith and I- Islams have I'll actually read a pa- uh, Muslims have a have a passage in the Quran that says Allah. They're, word for god has not taken any son nor has there ever been with him any deity and they reason thus if there had been then each deity would have taken what it created and some of them would have sought to overcome the others so so the reason is god god there could not be a plurality in god's nature because if there were there'd be competition there'd be fighting uh, uh. but when you let the bible speak it presents to us a god not that it's not a two-dimensional god it's not a god we contain can contain it's not a god of our imagination it's not a god we could manage it's a god that explodes our categories of thought a god who's infinitely above and beyond us and a god who can take the initiative to send himself to us because it is because god is an eternal triunity of love that He creates us not to get something from us that He doesn't have within Himself, but to share with us the love that He has within Himself. So we see right packed into this passage the doctrine of God's three-in-oneness that gives shape to the very meaning of love. So this is ascending. And just let me just pause here and just encourage you and, and apply this, this truth is when you invent a God that is that you can that you can make sense of that you can manage that god will always be boring (laughs) to you but when you when you take the bible and let the bible tell you who god is in all its in all his wonder and beauty and complexity you will never be bored you will never be disappointed you may be confronted you will be confronted but that's the only way you could ultimately be loved so, this miracle that we experience, that we celebrate at Christmas time, it's ascending, but it's also a becoming. So, if you look at verse 5, rather verse 4, the latter half of the verse, it says, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. What does that tell us? That tells us that the Son of God became a human being. Now, John chapter 1 verse 14 it says the same thing, and John writes in that verse, the Word became flesh. Now, the term for that, and many of you are familiar with this term, is the term incarnation, incarnate flesh. God takes on flesh. When we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the miracle of the Creator becoming a creature, Now, this seems so inconceivable to people. In fact, the very existence of God God sometimes is inconceivable to people. Um, In 1961, something happened that changed history, uh, or that was history-making, at least, and that is that the Soviets sent the first human being into space, Yuri Gagarin. And famously, it's reported that he said when he got into space, when he got back, he said, I looked around, and I didn't see God. God. And, and he, he later on writes that uh, he got a lot of letters in the mail of people saying how, um, he, he said, I don't see any of God up there. Later on, he would write that uh, he was thrilled to get a stream of letters from fans telling him how glad they were that he didn't see God there either. Two years later, in 1963, C.S. Lewis wrote a, an essay, a sermon actually, called The Seeing Eye, in which he responded to the atheistic Soviets by saying, if God exists, he doesn't relate to us as the man upstairs relates to the people downstairs, as if you could walk up the stairs and find the guy upstairs. It, it, God, if he exists, is he true if he is truly God, then he's the creator, then he he exists to us more like uh, the relationship between Shakespeare and Shakespeare's plays. Uh, it would be foolish to read through all the plays of Shakespeare and and say, I I don't think Shakespeare exists because I don't find a single character named Shakespeare in in all these plays. He said, no, wait, Shakespeare, his existence is is seen and felt and understood all throughout the plays, but he's not himself a character within the play. He's the author of the plays. It's kind of like that with God, except one important distinction, one important difference. And that is that God wrote himself into the play. God himself became a character within the play. That's, the, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the incarnation. God became a human being. The um, British novelist Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. And she went on to become a, fam- become a famous detective, uh, a writer of detective stories. And fans of of Sayre's stories uh, tell us that she at some point in these novels introduced uh, a character, a woman, and now the the main character in these novels is a single lonely man, okay? And, And at one point she introduced a character, a woman, who was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University and who was a famous detective novelist. Now, Now, critics of, uh, not critics in the negative sense, but students of Dorothy Sayers' writings see what's going on here. She looked into the world she had created, saw her lonely hero, and wrote herself into the play to save him. But you know what God did? As touching as that is, what God did is infinitely more moving because God literally became a human being. He literally entered into our struggles, born of woman. That means God became a human being. This almost almost defies even our ability to understand it, but that's what we are celebrating when we celebrate this great miracle we call Christmas. And third, this miracle we celebrate, what it is? It's not only ascending, a becoming, that is God becoming a human being, but it's also a limiting because you see there in verse 5, born, verse 4, born of woman, that is human, born under the law. This this tells us this. God embraced limitations. This kind of reminds me of the poem that I read to you at the beginning by W.H. Auden. How can the infinite become a finite fact? How can the limitless be limited? How can... The Almighty embrace weakness. And yet, this is what we're celebrating when we celebrate celebrating Christmas. We just sang about a king in a, in a feeding trough. I mean, if, if God were detached and completely disconnected from this world, then no nail could shatter the gates of heaven, come right up to the throne room, and pierce the Almighty. And yet, it happened to God when Jesus was nailed on the cross. God bled. God thirsted. God died. And can it be that I should gain an interest in his blood? Died he for me, the song goes. Tis mystery all that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. I mean, th- this is what this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. I mean, let's just take all the glitter that our culture has piled upon the, the, the Christmas, and let's just take a leaf blower and blow it all away to see the real gold beneath. This is the real gold. This is the real change, turning point. This is the true miracle. God Himself became a human being. God embraced limitations. Jesus, he, he obeyed every law. He fully satisfied the law of God. Now, you might say, well, this sounds all nice, moving, but what does it have to do with me? And this, is, this is moves us on to the second point, but that is why we, needed it, why we need this miracle. But before I move on to the second point, I do want to say that this grand miracle has been compared with uh, uh, God as a diver. Removing layer after layer of clothing leaping into the sunlit pool where it's warm and green then down into the darker icy depths plunging right into the mud bringing something grabbing something swimming back up through the ice icy cold water then through the warmer water and finally lungs nearly bursting erupting into uh, over the surface of the water with something he has gone down to get what has what has that diver gone down to get or to, to make transparent the metaphor, what is God, why did God do this? I mean, what what need is there in you and me that would warrant such a miracle? And this is what Paul is talking, this need, and this is point two here, why we need it, this need is what Paul is referring to in verse 3 and verse 8 of the text. So, look at verse 3 of Galatians 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that, that word that's rendered elementary principles, if you're looking at a new international version, it may actually bring out the fact that there is a, an allusion to spiritual forces here. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So, as simply as I could put it, the reason that you and I needed such a, a history-making history-pivoting miracle is because you and I are naturally enslaved. And the reason is this, and I just want to tease this out with a couple of propositions. The reason is this. First of all, everybody worships something. You you can't get through life as a human being without, at some point when you become conscious, your awareness begins growing, then you start seeking for some meaning in life. I want something to live for, I want something to give me significance, I want to know who I am and I want to live for something, and there's this, there's this void, this vacuum right in the very center of every human being, right in the center of my heart and of your heart, and we want to fill it with something, and that's, that, that filling with something is called worship. But the problem is this, we always worship things that instead of raising us, instead of freeing us, end up slamming us down and enslaving us always happens that way. And the things that we tend to like suck right into the center of our being tend to be things like this, or more uh, more accurately, as you'll see, a cocktail of these things. My race, for example. Taking pride in the color of my skin or my ethnic uh, background, my ancestry, or my nation. Uh, seeking my, my identity and who I am in the nation that, that, that I'm a citizen of, or, or my religion, or, or it could be my relationships and, and finding affirmation from other people and, and being well liked, and, and that's filling my void, or my perceived intelligence, or my reputation, or my sexual orientation, or something that I think is so important to me, and, and you think, that is worth building my life on. And the problem is, whatever, it could be religion, it could be wealth, uh, it could be body image, whatever that is, it always ends up making you a slave of it. You think that you're the master, and it ends up mastering you. You think it's the path to freedom, and it ends up being the path of dehumanization. And and it works a little bit like this. If you think that ultimate meaning is found in your race, the color of your skin, then then you you have got to look down with disgust upon people of other races. Or if you think that ultimate religion is found in a certain religious identity, then, then you're going to look on with an attitude of superiority and, 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 and moral higher ground than people with, the, with other faiths. Or if you think that ultimate meaning is found in relationships, then you're going to inevitably have to build yourself up be in front of other people and be devastated when people don't affirm you like you think they should. And instead of that, that freeing you, it's, it's made you a slave. This is what we do. And this is why Paul is saying, he says, you are enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And we also, I think most of us in this building would consider ourselves to be religious people. We are involved in regular religious observances, and yet we can end up having a distorted view of God that ends up enslaving us. A God that we think we have to manage, and we have to to put in our time or put in our money or do our thing, otherwise, he's going to be upset with us. And instead of freeing us, that actually ends up enslaving us. See, well, I'm, I'm saying all this because I'm saying I'm saying this is why we need the miracle that we celebrate at Christmas time. And I, I think I want to get even more personal here, just because I noticed when I was reading the text in the original language that the the pronouns become more and more specific. And then as Paul, first of all, look at verse three. He 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 says we we were we were children, we were enslaved, but then he 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 shifts tone. Look at verse. Uh, six he says, because you are sons, there he uses the second person plural, but then by the time he gets to verse seven, he uses the second person singular, he's talking to individuals, All right, so it gets increasingly specific, and I just want to ask you this what it does what you find meaning in life or what you're attempting to find meaning of in life in life is it freeing you to love, or is it? Fueling your anger, fear, or addictions. I think that might be a helpful diagnostic test for you. Is what you have kind of settled on? And I'm not saying that everyone may have the. Sometimes I often don't have the self-awareness to find out what I'm worshiping in a particular moment. But but as you begin to help, as, as you begin to think in these categories, you could ask yourself: Is whatever I'm seeking ultimate meaning in? Is it freeing me? Is it liberating me to love God and others? Or on the other hand, is it fueling my fear, my anger, or my addictions. I don't know what you're enslaved to. I don't know what you tend to be enslaved to. But if it's not the God that's described here, and I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, then it is not humanizing, liberating, freeing you. It is enslaving you. And you probably know it. In the Your, your heart may be at this point answering, answering and saying, yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. Now, the thing that just intensifies this is that these are not manageable um, gods, manageable objects of worship. They have a stranglehold on us that's deeper than we can actually we actually realize. Because these are called these elemental spirits. So how does this miracle change us then? How does what I just described a few minutes ago, this God's sending himself, God becoming a human being, God entering into our limitations, how does this change us? Third point then, how it changes us. The key words here in verse 5 are redeem and adoption, and in verse 6, the sending of the Spirit of God's Son. This means that whereas before, whatever we looked at as our God, whether it was sex, power, money, friends, fame, reputation, body image, whatever it it is, is a cruel tyrant. And now, whatever God does to intervene, it totally shifts our view of God. And now we, we see God, if we embrace this by faith, now we see God not as a tyrant but as a father because God becomes our father because Jesus redeems us out of slavery that's what's going on here God sent us he sent us his son and so his son bears the weight and penalty of our slavery that's the meaning of the cross that's the that's the whole meaning of the fact that Jesus Christ died he's taking upon himself the penalty that you and I ought to have paid because of our self-imposed slavery, Jesus bears it when He dies on the cross. And that death on the cross, it it redeems us. It breaks those those constraints. It breaks the the manacles, the chains that had bound us, and it frees us. It frees us. It's a redemption that is a purchasing paid by Jesus Christ. That's that's how this solves our problem. And not only are we simp- are we undone from slavery, purchased out of slavery. But it's like, if you want to think of that's the negative part of it, but positively, we are adopted as sons. That is, we have a change in status. You and I, because of this great miracle, can be considered to be sons and daughters of God. And God doesn't want that to be His little secret… He wants you to know that too, which is why He sends not only His Son into the world, but He sends the Spirit into your heart to tell you, and you are a daughter of God, and you are a son of God. That's the role of the Spirit of God. Who, If you have accepted Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God by faith, you also receive the Spirit of God by faith, who is telling you this is who you are because of Jesus Christ. No longer a slave, now a son or daughter. That's the miracle of Christmas. And what does this do for us then? And how do you get it? We'll answer the second question first. This is not a miracle that you work, it's not a miracle that you earn, just simply put. You, you have to receive it. And the word for that is faith. And that's what Paul's talking about if you just flip a page back in verse chapter three, verse 23. This began the scripture reading a little earlier. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law Paul's whole point, in, if you just look back a little further in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? The, the response to anybody who says, "Well, wow, this is an amazing miracle. I recognize that I feel within myself the shackles of sin, the enslavement of my worshiping things that aren't really God, and I need to be free. Here is the solution. You need to believe what God has done for you. Trust that Jesus Christ is God's Son sent to die and rise again for you. That's what it requires. And a lot of people at this point think, well, it has got to be more to it than that. By faith you are saved. Uh, by, by grace you are fa- saved through faith, and that not of yourself it is God's gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And when you do receive it by faith... What does it free you to do? Well, it frees you. I don't point out just three things it frees you to do. They're all related. It frees you to, it frees you to love. It liberates you to love. You, you see in verse, and I'm going to skip around here because I have to try to get the force of Paul's argument throughout the book of Galatians. In verse, chapter 5 and verse 1, look at the first verse. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now, we tend to think of freedom in terms of absence from restrictions. Freedom is getting to do what I want to do. It's it's a concept, especially prevalent in Western modern thought, called an absolute negative freedom. In other words, freedom is is defined negatively by what I don't have to do. But when people define freedom that way, it leads to a complete disorientation because they don't know what they're for. I think that kind of, if you you want to investigate this and you look what's going on in society, people are embracing freedom, but they've lost what freedom is for. They want to have freedom as to how they define themselves and everything about themselves, but they've lost an ability to understand, well, what am I for? Now, here's what the Bible says. Freedom is the freedom not to define yourself. It's the freedom to be who you are made to be. And who you are made to be is to love and enjoy God. That's what you're made to be true freedom is not absence of limitations, it is the power to love. That's true freedom. And when you are set free from the idols you thought would satisfy you, and you realize, I was enslaved to those, and now God is my father, and I am his daughter, I am his son, I am truly free to love God. Because before you couldn't love God, because all you saw of God, all you saw God as was a tyrant demanding of things uh, of you, demanding things of you, you couldn't do. And now you see God as a father who could not be more pleased with you. Now that is freeing, my friends. Maybe You may be a child or a teenager in this room, and there are many kids and teenagers in this room, and you thought God was like a, 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 just a demanding tyrant saying, do this, do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then you, And I'm telling you, that's not the way God is. God is a God who gives to you, who sacrifices for you, and knowing that, it frees you to love God. Has there ever been a point in your life, or maybe it's right now, that you feel frustrated with God, angry with God, because you feel like God is the roadblock to all the good things you want in life? And seeing God this way will allow you… Wait, that God, is not, God is not a roadblock to all the good things that I want in life. God is the only good thing I want in life, and He's giving Himself to me. And that, my friends, that frees you to love God. Here's the second thing it does for you. It frees you to trust God, because some of you are wounded this morning, and your wound throbs and it makes the whole thought of God, how, how could God let that happen to me? Why, could, why would God let this, me go through this? Why would God make my family like it is right now? Or why would God give my loved one the sickness he or she has right now? Or why would God allow my, my work situation to be so vexing right now? Why are we under, going into Christmas season, why are we under such strain financially? And you look up at God and you're like, God, Give me what I want. But seeing that God is your Father frees you to trust Him and say, God, I don't understand, but you must be doing this for my good. Why? Because God sent His Son and sends His Spirit, and His Spirit is saying, whatever's going on right now, it's from Abba, Father. And third, it frees you to love others. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, whatever you, whatever you think freedom is, it's not about serving yourself. <laughs> That's slavery. Whatever your freedom is, it is an opportunity through love to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, this goes back to this fundamental principle we've got to understand about the relationship between freedom and limitations. And that is true freedom is not the absence of restrictions, true freedom is the power to love God and others. And it may be the reason why you don't love other people like you ought to is because, is because you're not free. You know, the freest person in the entire, the freest freest human being in the entire history of human beings was Jesus. He had the freedom to, in the very beginning, with a flick of his finger, to send all the galaxies spinning. (laughs) That's freedom. He had the freedom to say, let there be light. All the light comes to, comes in. That's freedom. And yet the freest person in history embraced all the limitations and served other people. Now that's freedom. Do you know how freedom, freeing it is to not be constrained to have to prove yourself to everybody, (laughs) to be stingy with everybody, because you've got something to prove. Do you know how freeing it is to know that you are more loved than you can ever imagine and so you can just dish it out to everybody else and you're going to lose nothing because you've got an infinite supply because you are loved because God sent you his son and sends you his spirit and his spirit is always saying you're a child of the king, you're a child of the king and so you can just dish out the love it doesn't mean it's going to be easy it doesn't mean that your insides will going to be I don't want to do that, what it does mean is that you have the freedom to love if you know Jesus Christ as your savior and that's that is the true meaning of christmas that's why i think these yes these secular movies they they they're trying to get at this i think this turn from selfishness to love this turn from stinginess to generosity but it's way bigger than they understand it's incredibly bigger than they understand more uh, huge more more significant than they understand why it's god giving of himself and freeing us to give to one another. And I think it's as practical as this. There may be a letter you need to write, a text message you need to send. Someone you need to say, I'm sorry to. Someone you need to say, I forgive you to. Someone you may need to invite over to your house just as a way of saying, I love you. There may be someone that's outside the bounds of your comfort zone that you need to reach out a hand to and you never you could you never imagine yourself the sort of person that could do something like that and yet knowing that you are free to love you can do it not because you have it within yourself but because of the true miracle of Christmas and that is that God sent his son And sent his spirit so that anyone who trusts in him can be radically transformed.